0: Our scripture reading for this morning will be from First Thessalonians chapter four, verses one through eight. I'll be reading through the um, New American Standard Bible. Uh, if you don't have a like translation, there should be one in the seat in front of you. It's on page one hundred sixty of the New Testament. Now, if you're able, please stand. They don't have children's church today. Oh, oh, oh! Uh, children can be dismissed now. I was given false information. somebody scribbled it out I I have the proof (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I got you Uh, again if you're able please stand as we read as I read God's word finally then brothers and sisters we request, request and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk that you excel even more for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one violate the rights and take advantage of his brother or sister in the, in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you previously and solemnly warned you. For God has not called you to impurity, but in sanctification. Therefore, the one who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word.
1: Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we have already sung and offered prayers to you and celebrated what has been done for us in Christ. We come to the section of our worship service this morning where we open your word. And Father, as we open your word and as your word is preached, Father, we need you. We need you to open our eyes and open our hearts, reveal to us truths in your word that we would walk out of here no longer the same. Father, let it not be my words, but the words that your people need to hear from you, O God. Transform us through your word as I preach this morning, O God. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's wonderful to be in front of you again, family, after we... uh, couldn't be with each other last week because of the snow. We got more snow yesterday, but thank God it wasn't as much as they were claiming at first. I heard some people say it was going to be about 11 inches, but but we didn't get that much. As we continue our study this morning in 1st Thessalonians, I have to say that it has been a joy. It's been a pleasure to take a closer look at this particular book. It's been a pleasure to share the pulpit With my brother Steve and and Bark and Keith as we have sought to go line by line through this particular letter uh, written by Paul. It's no secret that here at Green Run we're committed to expositional preaching. We're committed to examining God's word carefully line by line so that we can be transformed by what we see in God's word. We're committed to being submitted to what we see in scripture. Uh, scripture is the only rule of faith uh, for practice for the church, and we hold to that. We believe that here at Green Run. I believe that even topical messages, to quote Albert Moeller, even topical messages should be done expositionally. It's our goal to carefully expose the meaning of this, the text. Uh, with that being said, I want to remind you of what we have here in 1 Thessalonians. While it's true that on Sunday we seek to go line by line explaining the text, I want you to remember that this is a letter. It's an epistle. It was meant to be read at one sitting out loud at one time. And if you haven't done that already, I would encourage you to do that this week. Take 45 minutes, an hour. It's five chapters. Take some time. Read through the entire book. I think reading the letter the, letter, the way it was intended to be read can it be a great benefit for God's people? We ought to do that. We'll see themes sometimes that show up throughout the letter, repeated phrases meant to draw our attention to a particular topic that sometimes we may not see when we read through it slower. If we were to stand up here this morning, if I just came up here and decided just to read through the entire letter, I think we would see something surprising that would jump out at us when we started chapter 4 we will immediately notice a change in the way that Paul is addressing the Thessalonians. We will see that he's going to switch gears in the way he's addressing them. Now, up until this point, what we've had in verses 1, 2, and 3 is what we can call a personal narrative. We've heard Keith and Mark and Steve and me, we've preached through chapters 1 through 3 so far, and it's taken place in sort of a personal narrative. We've had instruction We've had the gospel laid out. There's been some exhortation, but it's all been done in the context of this personal narrative that Paul is laying out. He's telling them about himself, what's going on with him. He's reminding them of things that he did when he was there with them, and he's informing them of what happened when he left. In chapter 1, he gives thanks to God for how they received the gospel when it was preached to them. They didn't just listen to the words They were obedient to the message. They were transformed by the gospel. Paul let them know that as he traveled in every place, news of their faith towards God has been going forth so that they didn't even have to say anything. Paul is traveling to different cities and people are talking about what's going on in Thessalonica. Uh, their life, their faith towards God is now even affecting Paul's ministry as he's going to different places. We said that Thessalonica was a port town. Perhaps this has a lot to do with it. People would come to Thessalonica, they would do their business, they would go back home, and they would talk about what they would probably refer to this, this Jewish set, these Christians in Thessalonica. Paul said that people were talking about them. In verse 2, he reminded them of how he lived when he was there, and he spent some time recounting his hasty exit. If you remember, he was chased out by a mob. He couldn't stay as long as he wanted to. The mob not only chased him out of Thessalonica, they followed him to the next town, and then they would come back to continue to persecute the church in Thessalonica. He expresses his desire to see them, and then in verse 3, He says when they could bear it no longer, I mean in chapter 3, when he says they could bear it no longer, they stayed behind in Athens and they sent Timothy, who came back with a good report. Last time we were here, Steve preached this. Timothy came back with good news. Good news about their faith and their love and how they also desired to see Paul. Not only did Paul have a love and a desire for them, a mark that they were truly in Christ, is the love that they have for each other and the love that they also had for Paul now. This was a comfort to Paul. This young, young church born out of persecution, born in the midst of a mob chasing Paul out of the city. They were, this young church, by the grace of God, it was thriving. Now, at the end of chapter 3, it's important that we see something. We find Paul uttering this desire for the church, and now, as I said, when we get to the beginning of chapter 4, we'll, we'll see a switch from personal narrative to apostolic instruction, exhortation, and encouragement. I think we all could use some encouragement this morning. He wants to instruct them on how to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And if you're a believer this morning, I hope that your heart leaps for joy at that very thought. And if it doesn't, I hope by the end of this sermon that the idea... This idea that you, that all of us, that we can walk in a way that is pleasing to our Father in heaven, that is something for us to rejoice, to look forward to. That is something for us to be filled with joy about. That there's a possibility that we can walk in such a way that pleases our Father in heaven. We should all desire that. I hope that by the end of the sermon we all desire that in greater measure this morning. I want us to see three things as we begin to look at chapter 4. If you're taking notes, I have three headings. Number one, furthermore. Number two, an exhortation to excel. And number three, your salvation. Furthermore, an exhortation to excel and your salvation. In chapter 4, verse 1, we start off with these words from Paul. Finally, then. Finally, then. What's going on here? It seems as if Paul is coming to a conclusion in this letter, but if you look at your Bibles, he has a lot more of the letter left to right. Is he like one of those pastors? They get up, they preach, they tell you they're coming to a conclusion, and then 45 minutes later, they're still closing the sermon. Is that what's going on here? <laughs> is Paul, is his, the end of his, uh, this letter longer than the rest of the letters? That's what's happening? Did Paul get to chapter 4 and realize, man, I got some other things I need to tell uh, the church in Thessalonica. Let me tag this in on the back of the letter. That's not what's going on here. When he gets to the chapter 4 and he begins to change how he's addressing the Thessalonians, uh, the NASB says, finally then. But I like what the King James translates, finally then. I like how the King James translated it. It translates this as furthermore. Furthermore, while it's true that Paul is switching gears, I think that word furthermore helps us to see clearly that there's a link between what he's going to say and what he has already said in chapters 1 through 3. Uh, specifically, and we're going to look at this, specifically chapter 3 verses 10 through 13. If we take a look back, we see first in chapter, in verse 10 Paul expressing his desire for this church. What does Paul tell us? What is he praying for this church? In verse 10, he says that he is praying that he can come see them so that what is lacking in their faith may be complete. Then in verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, we get the actual contents of that prayer. So he says, hey, I'm praying for you guys. This is what I'm praying. Now let me pray for you. And we see the contents of that prayer. He prays that the Lord will cause them to increase and abound in love for one another and all people, so that, in verse 13, he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. One commentary I read said that we can sum up his desire and his prayer for them like this. He desires to see them so that their faith may be complete. That they would increase in love and that their hearts would be established in holiness. A faith that's complete, an increase in love, established in holiness. Now, I want us to notice something else about this prayer that he prays in in chapter 3. Notice something important in verse 12. He doesn't pray these things, that these things are done in the strength of the Thessalonians, right? He doesn't say, he doesn't pray these things and say, okay, guys, good luck with that. In Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, he prays that the Lord would cause these things in them. This is what Paul desired for this church, and I think that Steve did a great job when he preached this section, when he preached telling us that this is something that we ought to be desiring for each other. Do you desire that for yourself? Do you desire that for Green Run Baptist Church? Do you desire this faith that works being perfected and completed in this difficult journey of life, laboring to increase more and more in our love for one another, Steadfast fast in the hope that our hearts are being established so that one day we will stand blameless before the throne of God. Is that your wish for yourself? Is that your wish for your brothers and sisters here in this local body? Is that your heart's longing? Do you, along with Paul, ache to see that? It's one thing for us to see, oh, that's great. Paul desired this for the church in Thessalonica, but... Does Amos desire this for his brothers and sisters here at Green Run? That's the question. Do we desire to grow in greater measures for this in our life? I pray that we do desire these things. However, we all know that it's possible to have a great desire for something without knowing what the next step is, right? We have something that we want to attain, but how do we reach it? That's a completely different story. It's like seeing a a beautiful city off in the distance. We know we want to get there. We know that that's our destination, but how do I get there? What road do I take? How do I equip equip myself for the journey? What's the journey going to look like? How can I get there? I have this great desire for this, but how do we attain these things that Paul desired for the Thessalonians? How do we attain them for us, and how do we attain them for Green Run? The Thessalonians, if they pay close attention to this letter that Paul sent them, they might have been tempted to ask that same question. But Paul, by the Spirit of God, when he writes, he doesn't disappoint us. He will now begin to in- instruct us in chapter 4 on how to flesh out what he prayed in chapter 3. He'll give us apostolic instruction on how to walk in a way that is an answer to his apostolic prayer. He starts with this exhortation to excel. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, verse 1 and 2 with me. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to take some time to look at this exhortation. I want to uh, take apart this exhortation that Paul uh, gives the Thessalonians. The first thing we see, I want us to notice, is that that this is an, an affectionate exhortation. An affectionate exhortation. We're once again reminded of his love for these believers. He calls them his brothers and his sisters. They're his family. This is not just some throwaway term. This is not just a greeting that he gives because he's writing a letter and that's what you're supposed to do. They are his brothers in Christ. We need to think about each other like that. When we call each other's brothers and sisters in Christ, remember, Christ is our big brother. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are all together part of God's family. Even calling and referencing each other as brothers and sisters, there's a glorious truth hidden in those familial terms that we all ought to rejoice about and think deeply about. He's using these familial terms once again that we see throughout all of his letters and we see it throughout all of Thessalonians. His love for the Thessalonians is evident through this entire book. Earlier, he compared his love for them to a mother nursing her own children. He talks about his fond affection for them and how he desires to see them. Now, we come to a section that i Culture, you know, might begin to call contradictory, right? Because he loves them. This is an affectionate exhortation. But later on in this chapter, he's going to say some things that would very well challenge those believers directly. He's going to say some things about something that some things that they might be struggling with. And remember, this is a letter that's going to be read out loud in front of everybody. There might have been some squirming going on in that particular local body when he mentions some of the things he mentions later on. Things that would challenge them directly. And if it's challenging the Thessalonians directly, there are some things that he mentions later on that we'll get to next week that is going to challenge us directly. Some things that aren't necessarily easy to hear. It's not easily digestible, uh, but it's done out of love and affection. More and more it seems as if our culture would call that a contradiction. This idea that you can say something to someone that makes them uncomfortable, that might even hurt their feelings, and yet it comes from a place of love and affection, a desire to see someone grow in godliness. Our culture says, you can't tell me something that is painful and yet claim that you love me. But Proverbs 27.6 says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. Which one is it? Either culture is lying or scripture is lying. The Bible isn't lying, just in case any of you had any questions about that. The Bible isn't lying. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. This exhortation that Paul gives to them, it's affectionate. It's coming out of a place of love. However, it's also forceful. He ain't playing around. He's not sugarcoating anything. And we're going to see that here in the way he gives this forceful exhortation. He gives this forceful exhortation to excel in our walk, and it's a serious matter, and we're going to see that in a way he he double downs on how he urges them to walk. He says we request and exhort. The King James says we beseech and exhort. The ESV writes it as we ask and we urge. It doesn't seem like he needs to use all those words as he's exhorting them. But what he's doing, he's, he's forcefully pleading with them to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. But don't get it twisted. He's not some beggar with tear-stained eyes with no authority Pleading with them, would you please, when you get a chance, walk this way? That's not what's happening here. This beseeching that he, this beseeching, the request, the exhortations that later on in verse two he's going to call commandments, they're given with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that at the end of verse two for now, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And we also see it in the second part of verse 1. Brothers, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. In a very short amount, amount of time here, he invokes the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems like he's pouring it on thick, right? Like I think he's doing it to draw our attention to how, how important and how seriously we are to take this walk. How seriously we are to take the idea that we are to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. Now I think we all know that a question or a request given with enough authority behind it isn't necessarily a request in the way we would usually think about it, right? It's really a command. When I was younger, growing up, my dad, he would look at my room and say, son, I advise you to clean your room. I didn't look at my dad and say, I- I'll take that under advisement, I appreciate it, let me weigh my options and I'll get back to you. This wasn't him uh, making a request, I didn't respond that way. I got up and did what he told me to do. And if I didn't, then later on he would gently remind me why this wasn't a request that I needed to weigh my options on. I'll let you imagine what the word gently there means. (laughs) This affectionate yet forceful exhortation uh, that we see Paul gives the Thessalonians can be given because of instruction that he says they had previously received from Paul on how they ought to walk and please God this idea of the Christian walk this understanding that uh, there is a way that we ought to live, live we see that throughout the entire New Testament right uh, we ought to see the exhortations of how we ought to live following the declarations of what God has already done How we ought to live is seen in light of what he already did. If you read a book or you hear another sermon, they might talk to you about uh, patterns in the New Testament, indicative and imperative patterns. Indicative uh, speaks to things that God has already done and imperative speaks to things you need to do. It's important for us to understand this pattern. And it's important for us to realize that the imperatives, what we need to do, flow from the indicatives, what God has already done. In other words, we could say like this, say like this, because of this, now do this. Because this is true, now you must live this way. If you read through Paul's letters, you'll often see those indicatives and imperatives throughout entire letters. Uh, you have been forgiven. Therefore, forgive. You have been made holy through Christ. Therefore, be holy in conduct. The whole book of Ephesians, we see this. This is what God in Christ, beloved, has done for you. Since God has done all of this, here is how you ought to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is now how you are to strive to live. We see that in Ephesians. We also see the entire book of Romans and we don't even have to leave First Thessalonians to see this. In chapter 1, he tells them that they are in God the Father and in Christ Jesus. That's a declaration of what has already been done. But then what has he observed about their lifestyle? What are they doing? Because of what Christ has done, Paul sees their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. That speaks to the way they are now striving to live. He tells them that they're in the Father and in Christ Jesus, but how does that work itself out? How how are they now living? Well, they became imitators of Paul and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We must see, this is important that we see uh, not only the importance in what we believe, but the importance in how we behave. You don't separate the two. If God has saved you, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you will be sanctified. If God has saved you, if you have walked through the narrow gate, you must necessarily now walk the narrow path. You can't have one without the other. Salvation isn't a one-time event where you get saved and that's it. You kick your feet up and wait for the return of Christ. We get saved and now there's a journey. There's a walk that we must take. We must be sanctified. Now, I know that seems obvious, but I don't think it can be lost on us that uh, Paul is saying this to a church that we've talked about it in the past sermons. This church, in a lot of ways, they seem to have it together. They seem to be uh, knocking it out of the park. Other people in other cities are talking about the church in Thessalonica. Timothy brings that good report back, but uh, I think we can clearly see in the text that no matter where you are at in your walk, there are still steps that you must continue to take on this narrow path. We must continue to grow. We mustn't become stagnant. We must strive to press in, to go further in and deeper still, to grow in holiness, to abound more and more in love for God and love for one another. R.C. Sproul said it like this. Spiritual complacency contradicts a believer's confession. Paul praises the Thessalonians for their progress in learning how to please God, but he also challenges them to excel further. Paul recognizes the constant need for growth and for straining forward. We can rejoice in the fact that there's something already there, right? Like when we look back, Paul, when he prayed for them in in, in chapter 3, he talked about uh, completing what is lacking in their faith. The faith was, there's faith there, but it must be completed. He prayed that they would increase in their love and abound in love for one another. There was love there but he wants it to increase. And then you look at the end of uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, this is how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk. You're already doing it, but he's encouraging them to excel more, to grow more, to not be stagnant, to push in, to go more, to do more. Now, I'm sure it's easy for us to hear what I just said and and sometimes when we think of this idea of striving and pressing forward even more uh, a weight can begin to settle on our shoulders if we don't think about this rightly it can begin to seem as if we're talking about the works based things right it can be what's all this work going on all this striving that you're talking about I thought all was done in Christ right this effort that goes into growing in holiness and we're thinking to ourselves might be thinking to ourselves well, the church in Thessalonica was commanded to do these things, to grow in these areas, but they're knocking it out to part. That doesn't describe me. I'm not knocking it out the part like it seems like they are. Most of the time it feels as if my growth is incremental, little by little, if at all. Sometimes I don't see it. When I, when I look at my own growth, it doesn't seem like I see it at all. How am I supposed to strive for these things that I'm commanded to do? That's the reason why I started with Paul's prayer in chapter 3. We're commanded to walk in a way that pleases God, and we're commanded to excel more and more in this walk. But like I've said, Paul prayed in chapter 3, verse 12, that it is the Lord that causes us to increase in these things and to abound in love. There's a song that I love that I used to sing in my old churches, and nobody told me this road would be easy, but I can't believe he brought me this far just to leave me. We're not by ourselves, we're, we're, this is something, a work that God is doing in us, and we are empowered by his Holy Spirit to work out what he is working in. I think we can see this comforting truth in verse 3. Maybe a bit impersonal, an act of the will, but that's not what Paul is trying to get across here. This word for will also carries with it an understanding of desire. This is God's will. This is his desire for us. It's a passionate desire. This is a warm, affectionate, gracious, kind, and loving desire that God has for us. He's a good father who desires what's best for his children. When I hear that, that's a great encouragement for me that no matter how hard the journey gets, no matter how down I get when I'm faced with my own sin that I'm still working through, the overarching theme, the thing that I keep thinking about that we constantly have to bring ourselves back to is that the one who is guiding this process, the one who is leading us through his process, is an all-powerful God who we can call Father who loves us and he knows what's best for his children. He's not just saying, I command you to get, be this way. It is a command, but the shaping, this sanctifying is for his glory and for our good because he loves us. Humanly speaking, we understand a bit of this as parents. A good parent understands for the need for setting rules in place, for setting up boundaries. They can see things that their children cannot see and we're in a fallen world. We're not perfect. We don't have clear vision like God does, but even we can see that for our children. Some of you sitting here thinking, you know each of your individual children, you know something works for one child and it doesn't work for the other child, right? You know that there are different things that each child has to do. Is it because when when parents, when we set these boundaries in place... When we try to look out for what's best for our children, is is it because we're trying to stop the fun? Uh, Are we trying to eliminate joy from their their lives even though they would claim that's what we're trying to do? Uh, A good parent desires to cultivate joy in their children. But we know, and God knows better than we ever could, that there are temptations and all sorts of dangers. There are deceptions that will make you think that they will bring you joy, but the satisfaction is only temporary. It will not end in joy. Those things, they only lead to heartache and destruction and death. And God knows that all too well. When we hear that this is the will of God for our lives, when we hear that this is his desire for us, when we, when we hear that we are commanded to be sanctified, we are to rejoice, beloved. This command comes from a loving father, a good and loving father. When I was preparing this sermon, I was going to touch quickly on, on sanctification and what it is and then uh, move on quickly to the specific areas that Paul mentions that we are to be sanctified in. But as I was preparing, I just couldn't get past this idea of your sanctification. And I think we should spend the rest of our time talking about sanctification, and we'll get into specifics next week. I want to talk about sanctification, your sanctification. What does that even mean? What is sanctification? If this is our Father's will for us, then we better understand what it is. One definition I wrote down, I like it, is this. Sanctification is the process by which God's Holy Spirit transforms believers' thoughts and motives and behavior to conform to the holiness of Jesus Christ. I say that again. Sanctification is the process by which God's Holy Spirit transforms believers' thoughts and motives and behavior to conform to the holiness of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit daily conforming us to the image of our big brother. Now, it's important to realize I'm not talking about initial regeneration, which happens in a moment. When we are saved, and that is separate, that is apart from any work that we do, amen? We don't bring nothing to the table, anything to the table. Regeneration is a work of God and God alone. If you're not a believer here this morning, uh, when I talk about sanctification later on, That's not what you need to be paying attention to. You need to be reborn. You need the new birth. You need to be regenerated from the inside out. There is nothing that you can bring to the table to handle your sin, your affront against a holy God. The only thing you can do is ask for mercy, to repent. Put your trust in Jesus Christ who lived the life that you couldn't and died the death that you should have. He suffered the punishment that you deserve so that you can be in right standing with God. I don't want you to leave here if you're listening or if you're here and you are not in right standing with God. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Be regenerated. Become our brother and sister in the new birth. If we think of regeneration as birth, then I think it's we can say we can think of sanctification then as growth. Uh, none of us contribute to our birth. But we all take action to ensure that we will continue to grow. Regeneration is a momentary act. It brings a person from spiritual death to life. It is exclusively God's work. However, sanctification is an ongoing process. It is dependent on God's continual action in the believer and it consists of the believer's continuous struggle against sin. It's something that God is doing in us that we now work out in our day-to-day lives, in our morality and how we live. Sanctification is worked out is working out what has already been worked in. It's what seems on the outside daily becoming more like what's on the inside it's the inner work of God becoming evident for all to see the believer is the one who is always advancing daily becoming what he or she actually already is on the inside does that make sense The believer is one who is becoming what is already true on the inside. You are in Christ. You are in God the Father. You are standing before God, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But now there's a way that we ought to live, and that's a journey. That's a process. But let me tell you something. As, As we struggle through this process, that doesn't change our position before God already. We struggle and we walk through this process. We are daily being sanctified. We daily become aware more and more of our our sin. We mortify the flesh. We seek to die daily. But God doesn't love you more uh, when you get better. He's not in love with a future version of of you. He's in love with you now. He loves you. And he, he doesn't grow in love for you as you go through this process of sanctification. I think it's important that we say that sometimes we can tie our idea of how God feels about us with how our own estimation of our sanctification walk and Even when God disciplines us, even when he chastises us, even when we do things that uh, we sin against God, we still have a loving Father who, who loves and cares for us. And that doesn't change if you are truly in Christ Jesus. Nothing can pluck you out of his hands. To be sanctified also carries with it the understanding of being set apart for service to God. There's another word that is in the same family of sanctification, and that word is holy. Holy to altogether other than. We see this painted for us beautifully in the Old Testament, I think. When we look at the furniture and the utensils and the altar for the tabernacle and the temple, the clothes of the priests all of that was meant to be sanctified. It was meant to be set apart for service to God and God alone. The priest didn't stop being the priest when he didn't go through the process of sanctification yet when he was uh, operating in his priestly duties, right? He was the priest, but then there was a process he needed to go through when he was operating in his priestly duties, So that he could serve God well as he was supposed to. If you're truly a a believer, then this process, this growing and sanctification, it's unavoidable. Nobody skips this process. If God has truly saved you, he'll sanctify you. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want to address something here that years ago came to my mind when I was thinking about sanctification. If we're taking a serious look at sanctification, you may ask yourself, well, who's responsible? Because it seems like I've made some contradictory statements. I mean, there's a lot of talk about striving and effort on our part, a lot of work that we have to do, and yet at the same time, we say that it is God who's doing this work in us. We just read in Philippians where Paul wrote that, Uh, On seemingly one hand, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but then on the other hand, it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's ultimately responsible, uh, who's responsible for uh, sanctification? Is it man or is it God? The answer is yes. Yes. In this process of sanctification, there is real, actual human effort. We're not puppets. that We don't just go on autopilot when we get saved. There is real human effort. There is real, actual striving that is empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The third member of the Trinity is at work in you, causing these things to be worked out. It's this process of sanctification that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Human effort empowered by the Holy Spirit. And dwelt by the Spirit, we're able to mortify the flesh and die daily. We're able to put off the old man and put on the new. We're able to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly natures. We can shout yes and amen to Paul's reminder to the church in uh, Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look what he says to them. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those who, those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this part. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Thank God for such were some of you. If you remember what was going on in the church in Corinth when Paul wrote that letter, you wouldn't expect him to say those things. You would expect him to end that list of sins with, y'all are still doing this stuff, now get it together. (laughs) But that's not how he ends it. He, he reminds them if they are true. If you are truly a believer in Christ, he reminds them of what is true. And now this is how you are to live. Put away that old way of living. There's a way you are now, uh, commanded to walk. Such were some of you, but he reminded them you were washed. Green Run, you were washed. You're being daily sanctified by the indwelling spirit of our God. These are great and grand, glorious truths that When we're sitting here with our Bible open and we're thinking about them, we can be moved by them, but then Monday morning comes and we have to go to work and the kids aren't doing what they're supposed to do and even though you're a perfect husband, your wife just doesn't seem to see that. (laughs) That's what Zach told me to say. (laughs) Monday morning comes And we have to constantly remind ourselves of these the the process of sanctification that we see in Scripture is something that we're going through on a daily basis. And that doesn't mean that you're immediately going to feel better about struggling with your sin. But I will say this, being aware of your sin to the point that it makes you want to struggle against it. Seeing your sin and being rightly appalled by your sin is a mark that you are in Christ. Even if it doesn't feel good at that time as you constantly as you deal with these sometimes besetting sins that keep uh, raising its ugly head, I love the doctrine of sanctification, but it's not an easy process. Some of the words we use this used this morning in connection with sanctification uh, labor work striving pushing forward, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This doesn't exactly paint a picture of being regenerated, followed by a life of leisure and relaxation. I think that we would all love if it happened in an instant. Right upon our profession of faith, we were immediately made perfect in our practice. It would be great if we could go from sinner to saint in heart and inhabit in an instant, but that's not the reality of the Christian walk. Beloved, you are justified. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. You are at this moment covered in the righteousness of Christ. All of these things are true, but in our day-to-day lives, sin hasn't been completely destroyed yet. Emphasis on the word yet. It will be one day, but not at this time. It's a defeated foe. I think sometimes when we think about these things, we, we can become weary and frustrated at what seems to be repeated effort to put to death some of those things. I, I don't know about any of you, but there are some things in my life, some sins that I used to struggle with that I no longer struggle with, but then there are other, There's certain other sins that just seem to, no matter what, they keep coming back. I, I, and I'm constantly having to put that thing to death. I heard uh, one guy talk about... Uh, a werewolf, and he talked about his friends letting him be aware of his full moons, and he he used that as an analogy for sanctification, he said, I have certain things that's like a full moon to a werewolf, you know, when that thing comes up, it's going to turn me into that wolf, and I need to constantly guard myself against that, I need to be checking the forecast, when is that full moon coming out, and I need to put that to the side, I need to stay away from those things. Some some areas of sin in our life, we have to fight it like that. It has to be a constant uh, awareness of the danger of that thing that is crouching at the door of our hearts desiring to consume us. It's true that we're in a fight against this sin in our lives, but you don't enter the fight ill-equipped for the battle. God calls his children to holiness, and he graciously gives what he commands. We're going to talk about this in detail next week, but God provides the practical means for our sanctification that will cause us to grow in holiness in specific areas. Through the work of the Spirit, we develop this a sense of sin and a deep hatred for it. Faith in Christ and love for him, delight in holiness and longing after more and more of it, longing for more love for God's people. We we develop a distaste for the things of the world. This is what Paul desired for the Thessalonians. This is what the elders here at Green Run, we desire it for each other and we desire it for you. Most importantly, this is God's desire for you. This is your father in heaven. This is what he desires for you, beloved. I'm hoping that As we continue to look at 1 Thessalonians, and this is a a theme that we're going to see pop up again as we continue preaching through this book next week, I'm hoping that we desire to grow in sanctification with a confidence confidence, uh, that it is God who is doing this work in us. There's a way that we ought to walk that is pleasing to God, and I want to encourage you with what Paul encouraged the Thessalonians with. In chapter four, at the end of chapter uh, at chapter four, at the end of verse one, he told them, "Walk in a way that is pleasing to God, just as you actually already do." Uh, when we pray for Green Run on Wednesday, the elders we gather and pray. I can't tell you how often something that one of you did that we see as an example of God sanctifying work in your life. That's an encouragement to the elders. We're going through a difficult time, but I think we could every Wednesday just spend hours just talking about what so-and-so did this and -and so-and-so did that. I won't say her name, but there's a member of the church a few weeks ago that I think said something to each elder. And when her name came up in the elder meeting, we all just started beaming. We all started smiling and we were falling over each other trying to talk about how much of an encouragement she was and, and how we could see God sanctifying work in her life. You're already doing this green run. I want to encourage you to excel still more. Don't get comfortable. Don't get stagnant where you're at. Excel even more. And we're going to see ways that we can do that next week as we continue through this chapter. This process, it may feel like it's two steps forward and one step back, but the one who's controlling this process will one day reveal his handiwork to all of creation you can't see it now, but then at his coming, you will stand in his presence of glory, blameless with great joy. This, this theme of looking forward to the second coming of Christ is something we see throughout the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. In my first sermon, I mentioned how at the end of each chapter, he points to the second coming. Before he talks about their sanctification here in chapter 4, In chapter 3, verse 13, he he ends his prayer with this, So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Beloved, you're not where you want to be, but thank God you're not where you were. And that's a part of us walking in sanctification with one another, uh, uh, I'm cheating a little bit, a little bit from next, for next week. But one of the means that God uses to sanctify his people is his people, is the family of God. There are times where, you, you know, you have to walk in community with one another because there are times where you're going to be struggling and you're walking. You're not seeing any growth. You feel as if you're not being sanctified. And a brother or sister comes to you encouraging you. Hey, I just wanted to tell you, you're such a great example of God's uh, work in your life. I see God at work in your life. And sometimes you don't even see it. And then the other side is also true. You may think you're doing too well, and hey, you need a you need those faithful wounds of a friend to remind you of who's actually working within you. This process of sanctification—it's beautiful, but it's not easy. It's hard, but it's worth it, so that we can walk in a way that is pleasing to our God, and that one day when. All things are revealed. There's an aspect of God's glory that all of creation is waiting to see when they look at the handiwork, that, the work that he is doing in you. Uh, one day when God, when, when the church is revealed, when the bride of Christ is revealed for who she is, creation will erupt in praise. Not praising the church, not praising the bride of Christ. they will glorify God for what he has done for sinners called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But that's the end. That's the city that we're walking towards. But we must continue to walk together to strive for it, to press in, to grow in our measures of sanctification. This week, like I said earlier, I hope you take time to read through this entire book. And I hope you take Paul's urgings and his exhortations seriously to examine yourself closely, to look at areas in your life. Pray like we prayed earlier uh, in our prayer for for pardon, that God would show you areas in your life that you need to be forgiven for, show you areas in your life that uh, you're still struggling with. Sometimes those areas are hidden and they surprise us all of a sudden. My prayer is that God would show you those areas. You would be rightly appalled by them, but then you would seek to get the work to put that thing to death. God is good and he's sanctifying his church for his glory and for our good because he loves us. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are worthy to be praised. And though we know that we are saved, that we are confident of our position in Christ, we are confident of our position before you We know that we are declared innocent. We are declared righteousness because of the finished work of Christ. Father, we know that there's a journey that we must still walk. We know that there's a path that we must still take. And I pray that even this week, even today, Father, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that we would be aware of your spirit indwelling us to strengthen us to to walk out what you have already worked in, and that we would do that with confidence. That we would be an example to a dying world of what it looks like when somebody who was called out of darkness is actually walking in the light. We love you, we honor you, and we glorify your holy name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please stand as we sing. Oh, Steve is coming from the Lord's. Lord's table, please be seated.